Welcome to AI Zen with Andrew and Jen, a podcast where a designer and a data scientist break it down and duke it out over how to create awesome AI experiences. All right, welcome back, everyone. Glad to have you here for another show of AI Zen with Andrew and Jen. We've got a fun topic for you today. So as you know, we here at AI Zen, we love the intersection of AI and design. And we've got a topic today sitting sweetly in that squarely in that sweet spot. Um, so as we as we all know, data is the fuel that makes AI work well, and collecting data is really great. But we need to respect that data and the people who provide it. And privacy is such an important part of that. So today we're we're very excited to have with us uh, Nishant Bajaria. Uh, he's the author of Privacy by Design. I'm so excited to introduce Nishant as a fellow author. That's the first time I got to say that. Uh, welcome, Nishant. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me here. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, your your book, uh, Privacy by Design, you start with a full chapter defining data and privacy. So, you know, that sounds very important and, and we may not have the right definitions in mind. So so let's start there. Like, what do people need to understand about data and privacy? Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, Jen, for having me here. Uh, it was important to start with the definition because when you have a topic like privacy that was essentially thought of as an altruistic, esoteric, nice to have concept like 10 years ago to something that is written about every single day. I mean, Bernie Sanders and Steve Bannon talk about privacy. And when you have that spectrum covered, you know that this is a topic du jour. What that also does is it creates a definition that may not always be correct. So there is the more visceral definition that you want to empower people to have the ability to control their data and have a sense of visibility, have a sense of agency and autonomy. But then when you actually instrument privacy, when you create a level of implementation, how do you make sure that bad stuff doesn't happen to people data, people's data? They don't get harmed. Data doesn't get lost. People don't access somebody else's data incorrectly. So there is the more visceral personal definition. And then there is the more engineering focused definition. So chapter one talks in detail about how the world has changed. How have we gotten accustomed to getting used to more getting more data from customers, collecting more data, using more data and doing it for customer benefit. But then what could go wrong? How do you make sure that there is some balance? So that's a lot of what chapter one is about and kind of builds for the rest of the book. Well, and there, there's so much in there just in that, that first chapter. And there's so many things that you need to think about and you need to be worried about from a, a, a privacy aspect. So what would you say is sort of the most common shortcoming when it comes to data privacy? What are people doing wrong uh, that they should be doing? You know, President Kennedy said the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. When it comes to privacy, people start looking for as uh, looking for asbestos when the rain has just begun. Right. That's kind of the mistake people make. The expectation is we can collect all this data. We can store it. We can have unmitigated, unfettered access. We can do all these creative things with data. We can buy data from third parties and we will do it because it will enable us to build better products for customers. It will keep costs down, which makes a lot of these products free. And then eventually we will get it right when it comes to privacy, because by the way, it's never us. It's those other people down the street that get it wrong. That mentality, that complacency is what people are doing wrong. Because what happens as a result of it, Andrew, is that by the time people realize that they have a ton of deficits when it comes to privacy, harms have already occurred. Like people have made copies of data. Some engineer has accessed data that they weren't supposed to. Data ended up getting shared with third parties that have no business having that data. So the lag between when you start making mistakes and realizing it and the lag between the realization of those mistakes and the impact of those mistakes is what 
really gets you. So people tend to delay doing the right thing by privacy because they think it's a burden. What they need to do, and this is what the book speaks to, is getting privacy right, doing things correctly with data is also good for business. And getting to that point of realization is what they can do to turn this around. I, I like that. And as I read farther in your outline, it seems that you, you tip off the answer. It's it's to be proactive. Like you yeah. said, not wait till it's raining, but to start thinking ahead um, be, before I have those problems. So like if, if I'm starting up a new project, I'm, I'm doing a data science project, I'm ready to you know, collect some data. What's the most important thing I should be doing proactively? Like if I don't do this, this thing first, like I am really in trouble. I think one of the first things you want to do is, um, and I'm going to cheat a little bit and make it two things. You want to make sure that you think of security and privacy together holistically. People think of them interchangeably, or sometimes they think they are completely different. You want to think about the two of them as a combination team. That is, what data can I protect? How can I protect it? And how do I look at it in terms of protecting it internally versus externally? And this is where security and privacy can play a good part. A lot of the, and I learned this lesson during my Netflix days, a lot of the protection tools and controls we were able to build for privacy came from security. So it's not an extra cost. You look at something like encryption, multi-factor authentication, key management. These are things you use typically to prevent external exfiltration or breach or misuse. You can apply them just as powerfully and seamlessly for internal protection as well. So think of them as a team. That's one thing you can do. But then the second thing you want to look at is building out governance much more holistically. That is, think of data in terms of quality, in terms of use in terms of necessity and try and think about data as a tier. Like when you go grocery shopping or when you pay your bills, you think about priorities, right? If you have a certain amount of time or a certain amount of money, you decide what you're going to buy and what you're not going to buy. There is always a prioritization stack ranking process that guides our decision-making, right? So when it comes to privacy, you want to think about it in in that sense. When I'm collecting data, how do I decide what the priority level of each data component is? How important is this data? For example, if I'm collecting your payment data, I should be regarding that as extremely sacrosanct. If I'm collecting data about your identity, your home address, that is extremely critical data. If I'm collecting data about your preferences, your, you know, who you love, who you are, where you live, what you eat, who you support politically, that data is extremely critical. On the other hand, if I'm collecting data about your viewing history, like what videos you've looked at, that may be a little less potent, especially if you aggregate that data with other people, right? So if it's just Jen's viewing history and she likes to watch Grandchester or she likes to watch The Missing on Amazon Prime, that could be extremely sensitive because she may not want the whole world to know. But if Jen is part of a thousand people who watches that show and we anonymize her information and she's seen as a part of a larger bucket, that's different. So you need to look at security and privacy together and then you need to look at governance much more broadly. What that will do, Andrew, is it'll help you protect your data much more intelligently from the moment you collect it so you don't have to go back and clean up technical debt. I I like it. Um, Jen, do you watch that show? (laughs) I don't. You know me. I only watch Buffy and horror movies, but I appreciate that other people watch other things. Well, you know, um, I think you I Buffy Jen, and horror movies, Jen, because I've been in privacy meetings that were scarier than horror movies or Buffy. So <laughs> the, the analogy, oh, I think, because I, like I really wanted to ask you that. Um, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, well before AI was, you know, mm-hmm. such a hot topic these days, and it made it kind of brought privacy issues to the forefront. I'd love to hear, you know, how you got into this field yeah. and. Um, you know, what some of your personal experiences were that, that have led you down this path? 
Yeah. So I first started dabbling in this space when I was at WebMD. I was an engineer at the time. And a lot of what I had to do was ETL work, which is basically data transformation. I used Microsoft SSIS and we were helping enterprise customers meet their healthcare needs and they would send us these massive files. And I would, at that point, I started realizing just the sheer volume of data that changes hands between different companies. Like, for example, if you search for healthcare data, if you search for a provider, if you search for health insurance, that information is used to make sure that your rates are managed or what healthcare benefits you get, et cetera. This is all totally legitimate, but how that data gets sent from company A to company B could have implications upon your privacy, right? So that's when I first started thinking about this topic. And I was fortunate to work with some amazingly smart ethical folks back then that helped me kind of grow up the right way. And I never quite picked up this ethos that I, I can just collect data and it's somehow mine to use. That's how I got started. The next step in my growth in this field was when I was at a startup in downtown Portland, where we had to get ISO 27001 certified, which is interesting because uh, two years ago, I was part of the Google team that was in the international standards board in Israel, where we ratified a significant privacy security standard. So it was kind of a nice bookend to being the only person that helped the company certify in privacy back in the early 2010s to then being part of the international standards body. So that's how careers grow and change in the space. The third step was when I was at Nike, when I got to work with one of the smartest people in the industry, she became kind of my mentor in the space for a bit there and gave me this break where I was able to start the privacy engineering program at Nike. So it was a combination of roles, combination of career decisions on the one side and on the other side, working for a company where privacy became a big deal. So you had these two parallel streams and at one point they unified and what was kind of a nice to have avocation, safe job in a company became one of the most important things. And the Nike moment is especially important because at the time uh, we were trying to fix our privacy program, make improvements there. Tim Cook was on our board and the Apple was fighting the FBI on, you know, the encryption backups for the, for our iPhone. So there was a bunch of things already happening in this space. Uh, and then of course, Silicon Valley was not even quite in the crosshairs of um, the privacy authority, so to speak. But my career was headed in a direction where I was making decisions, staffing people and learning this stuff so that when those tough moments came to build these tools and build these teams, I had that experience to lean on. Wow. You set yourself right up for uh, 2018. That's fantastic. <laughs> Such a mentor is what I would say. You, you've worked at some of the biggest places we, we saw in your profile, Google and Netflix and Uber and a, and a couple other real big ones on uh, on that list. And I, I wonder, you know, these companies work at incredible scale. And mm -hmm. let's say I'm, I'm a bit of a smaller company. Do I do I have the same challenges uh, as these these other companies do? Um, just less data or are they working on like fundamentally different different privacy challenges? And Andrew, that's a great question. <clears throat> and I think for especially when you are data driven, when your investments are made based on data and size, the number of employees is a significant indicator of how big you are. But I think in this case, sometimes the seeds of your privacy culture are sown at a much early stage. Sometimes at the seed stage, sometimes at series A, series B, before you become as big as any of my current or past employers. So I would say, how many customers do you have? How much data do you collect? Uh, where is the geographic spread of the data? How does your system architecture function? In other words, the typical microservices infrastructure where you have the edge API and then you have these thousands of microservices in the back and you have all these Kafka topics and you have the massive hive data storage. 
what what is the size and the architecture of that? I think that essentially is what governs a lot of these decisions. As an example, um, you know, when a lot of these companies were formed, they were not that big. The adoption is what essentially drove the conversation. There is no fundamental difference between any of our current social networking platforms that are so successful and potent and engagement driven and MySpace or Orkut. Remember ORKUT.com was this big social media platform back in the day and just kind of went away. Those didn't go anywhere. So I don't think the problems are fundamentally different or the audience size is different. It's more about how much does the platform drive engagement and what will it become two years out? So that's what drives the conversation. So it's a combination of the customer size, the platform itself, the adoption, the engagement, the geographic spread, and of course, the inflection point as to what changes in our society. I remember in 2012, my friends would say, Twitter is just this nice to have platform where I can just learn about stuff. Now, Twitter has become this massive engagement where somehow we were until a few days ago making policy by tweet. And uh, I do a lot of animal rescue by tweet as well. So these platforms are essentially play in the hands of whoever shapes them. That's, that's really interesting. Cause I think a, a lot of times you, you might say, well, you know, I, I'm no Google or I'm no, you know, I'm no whatever. Right. But no matter who you are, you've got some sort of data uh, and you should take, you should be taking care of it. So it's not, it's not something you could put off, right. Cause you might, you might grow up to be one of those larger companies, as you said, and um, much easier to get it right proactively than, than to have a, a, a scandal that torpedoes you right from the beginning makes exactly. sense. Exactly. And I think the other aspect is, you know, if you do this right from the get go, the historical analysis becomes much easier. Like the cost of cleaning up this data is pretty high. What people don't fully appreciate is if you have to restate your clusters, for example, if you have to rebuild your databases, if you have to rewrite your APIs, the cost is going to be there. So when people tell me privacy is expensive, why my response is wait till I tell you how expensive lack of privacy can be. So. Mm. If you were, let's say hypothetically, if you started your own company and it started growing towards that large size, would you bring your privacy in-house or would would you recommend outsourcing it? I think it depends. And that's always a tough question to answer as to whether you build, we buy it. I mean, the conversation is less about outsourcing it and building it in-house versus what part will you do in-house and what part will you outsource? And it, most of the people that have historically employed me tend to do this in-house, but I also advise a lot of VCs, a lot of startup companies that are just kind of starting out and figuring this out. Um, I've also recently done a webinar for a company called Cyril where they sell privacy capabilities for data cataloging as well. So it's a mix. My, my recommendation would be to, if you don't have the money in the beginning, at least speak to outside privacy council and privacy consultants who will make sure that your team is set up for success. So just being a simple example. One of the things companies struggle with is when they set up their privacy program, how do you onboard new products? So as an example, if you are building a capability to, let's assume you're on a retail business and one of your teams is trying to build out a new capability for a new food line or, or a new data collection methodology so you can infer what user preferences will be. And that product gets built, it gets scaled, it gets personalized based on geographies. But somehow in the beginning, you have no idea how do you check for privacy? Do you do it at the beginning? Do you wait for, for the product to end and then do an assessment? The risk of doing it at the end is that all the important engineering decisions have been made and it's very hard to go back and reverse them. 
if you do them at the beginning, you might not have the right skills to understand and the engineers might not have made up their mind. So what I've done at Uber and what we're doing here is we are building this arm called technical privacy consulting, where we work in partnership with the legal team. So engineers from my team partner with engineers who build core business products and we give them guidance early on and we tell them what to do, what not to do, what the privacy best practices are. And then we also tell the attorneys on the side that, hey, this is coming your way in the end, just be ready for X, Y, Z. So the attorneys know what's coming. We can get the easy stuff done and leave the hard stuff for the attorneys to do. And then in the end, when there is, an, there is a detailed privacy impact assessment to do, we help the attorneys get the stuff out the door and not be seen as a blocker at the same time, prevent any privacy harms, right? Now that sort of stuff is very hard to completely outsource. So my recommendation would be to have outside counsel and consultants set you up to understand what exactly do you need? It's a bit like hiring a realtor or just having an informal coffee conversation with somebody who sells homes to understand what your budget is like, what your purchasing power is like, what the school districts look like, and then engaging somebody full-time when you decide to buy a house. I would follow the same model. So think about setting up your privacy program as buying a house. You start slow, but you start early. So so like any good design practice, get everybody at the table in the beginning and, and measure twice cut once, right? Exactly. What you do not want to do, and Jen, there are many ways to do this right. The wrong way to do this would be to hire a whole bunch of people just to make it look like you care about privacy because then you're just wasting money or waiting for too late, hoping that these privacy magicians can fix it. And I mean, I get calls all the time. I get people hitting me up on LinkedIn saying, hey, I see you've done privacy at LinkedIn, at, uh, at Uber, or at Google and Nike or Netflix we're just starting out and we've just kind of been in business for two years. Can you help us? It's a leadership role. And I can just tell that these folks are in duress and under pressure because they now realize what a big deal it is. And you can't bring somebody like me on board and expect things to turn overnight. So making sure that the engagement is gradual, just like you would do for product development would be critical. So completely agree. And, and for it to work, it has to be a really collaborative process across a bunch of people. And I heard you er earlier say, um, you know, people who think it's expensive to do privacy, wait till how expensive it is to do it wrong. Is, is there any other technique you found to have a successful, um, you know, privacy collaboration other than saying, Hey, you know, this is going to cost you money. Well, I would say that, um, the way I would think about it from a collaboration perspective is I think it's important to have what is known as the connecting tissue. I think one of the great wins the tech sector has had is, I mean, there were two inflection points. The first was in the late 20, 2000, early 2000s, there was the beginning of the agile revolution where we sort of decided that the whole old uh, waterfall model wasn't working anymore. This notion where engineers go away for six months and build a great product and it may or may not work. You know, that cartoon that we often have, what the customer wanted, what they thought they were getting, what sales told them, you know, it's a harbinger of that era. So that went away. The second inflection point was this decentralized, democratized, bottom-up development where engineers operate in silos. And one of the challenges and opportunities for privacy and governance is to ensure that these folks actually talk to each other. They work with each other. So as an example, when I was at Netflix, we used to often talk about whose job is it to ensure that data that is not required anymore gets deleted. And we correctly assessed that it was everybody's job simply because it's the architect, it's the platform and the architecture team that had to delete the data. It was the platform team that built the pipes for the data to go forth. It was the edge API team that collected the data. It was the microservices that were, that were using it. So there is no one person that creates or solves this problem. It, everybody's got to own it together. And you need to make sure that the legal team and the engineering team work side by side because the attorneys need to understand a little bit of the engineering and the engineers need to understand what the legal requirements are. 
so that the system speaks to the composite need rather than a specific feature or a specific OKR. Interesting. So, so there's, and it sounds like as, as you were building you know, this particular example out, there was a, a lot of need for, for governance, a lot of places that you were checking to make sure, Hey, was the data deleted here? Was it deleted there, et cetera. And so like at a larger scale, like how do you keep this data governance working well? Are there tools that you use? Are there practices that you bring in? Like what's, what's your go-to move? I think there are several go-to moves. So first you want to have a governance posture that essentially speaks to the entire company. So one of the things I've done in every company that I've joined is making sure that there are what we call classification handling documents at Uber and had another name at Netflix before that, but fundamentally something that acts as this abstraction between legal and engineering. So you have laws like GDPR, CCPA, you have standards like ISO, FedRAMP, et cetera. How do you condense them all into one cohesive engineering friendly document that engineers can understand and say, you can do X with data. You can't store this data unless there are others just like it. How do you obfuscate this data store? Like, how do you make sure that you abstract out and condense not in, le- not in a legalese fashion, but in essentially a more engineering friendly fashion, what people are supposed to do with the data? So that would be step one. What that accomplishes for you, Andrew, is it forces engineering and legal to come to the table and build out privacy engineering, that is, and build out a doc and an artifact that speaks to the company as a whole. That's number one. The second thing you want to do is do some sort of risk classification that essentially ranks your data. So you will make sure that the most mission critical data gets protected. That's number two. You then want to build out a cataloging system. And, you know, there is precedent for this. Google has already shown us how to search and index data, right? So what you want to do is create a filing system for your data based on the label. So you, when you rank your data based on risk, you say, for example, my most sensitive data is level one government identifiers, social security numbers. So if you collect somebody's SSN to do credit checks, that becomes by definition, the most sensitive data. So the moment you collect the data, you intercept the data at the point of collection based on regular expressions, you affix a label to it. So any engineer who uses that data, collects it, shares it, stores it, deletes it, knows exactly what they're doing. So that is how you create some sort of automation by watching over your data like Big Brother does all the time. And the only way you can do that is by intercepting it at the point of collection. The only way you can do that is by having that governance talk that I mentioned, right? So this entire process is one of continuum. But the cool thing is, once you do it, you can repurpose this investment for the data science team when they do analysis of data. You can repurpose it for the marketing team when they make purchasing decisions. You can repurpose it for the cloud team so they understand how much data is being used where and they can decide how much storage to buy. So What I've done always is when you make the case for budget for privacy, you can demonstrate that, yes, we're doing privacy right with this investment, but it's also going to make us much better custodians of our data overall, which will save money, make data quality better and protect our customers overall. See, the the privacy team, they have to be best friends with the data science and marketing. That's that's good though, right? You're all all going to win together. I I, I love that. Yeah. and That's you know, great. the more you do it, and Andrew, you hit the nail on the head. This was harder to do like four, five, six years ago. But honestly, now when your business grows 20, 30, 40%, first, it may not, it may not always be so as last year showed us a number of businesses that were growing pretty quickly suddenly stopped growing because the economy shut down, right? But even when the business grows, you cannot just suddenly staff up 30 or 40%, right? So you have to figure out these connections, these synergies, these overlaps, these automation capabilities to ensure that your business and your privacy program can scale. Um, For the designers listening who 
don't have a tangible picture of what uh, Nishant and uh, Andrew are describing, IBM has a great site up, ibm.com backslash trust. And you can see all of our data security and privacy guidelines and how a large company divides that into different sections and, and just kind of like progressively discloses the further you dig down those kinds of guidelines and how intricate they get. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that, Jen, because one of the things that people typically, and there are two components to privacy, and I know we haven't touched upon it, so feel free to cut me off if I'm jumping the gun here. But there are two components to privacy. One is the stuff you do in the back end that is deleting data, obfuscating data, maintaining access control. There are no wins to share here. Like in other words, those are things we are supposed to do as good ethical collectors of data. But if you do it right, people may not say good job, but if you do it wrong, people will know about it. So the victories there are private, the failures are public, but it's important for companies to build public facing privacy tools because that is what the customer sees. That is what changes user trust and sentiment. And when you build those public facing tools, like the one you mentioned, and we have a lot of those at Uber, we just released View as Driver a few weeks ago. My colleague, Zach Singleton, had a pretty high profile release on VentureBeat.com. It forces you to think about your backend much more holistically. So in order for you to show these features publicly, you need to have your backend data storage clean. So it forces you to stay honest and updated when it comes to your data as well. So for people listening to this, this podcast who are wondering, how do I sell this idea to my executive leadership? How do I convince people that this is worth doing? Well, the more tools you have visually, the more you can demonstrate to customers that you're doing things right, the more they will trust you. The more regulators will believe that you're doing the right thing by privacy. And you can do that by having a cleaner backend data management governance infrastructure. So it's all part of one continuum. Don't think of backend privacy and front-end dashboards of the kind Jen mentioned as being two distinct entities. They are one and the same as part of one journey. Yeah, it's got to start with what's our company's ethos around this? And then how do we drive it down through the organization? And since you worked at Google, that brings up a good question. How did they drive down or not drive down the don't be evil uh, ethos in through privacy? So it was interesting. I was on the Google Cloud side and obviously there are limits to what I can talk about in terms of where I worked before. But one of the most positive memories from my time at Google is that I learned so much about just the sheer amount of control that is built. It is the amount of learning that is available, the amount of the number of techniques that are available, the amount of knowledge exchange that happens and the smart people that Google has hired. And I was privileged to work among them was such an education. I think what you want to do if you want to get privacy right, and this is my one big takeaway from my Google time. And I was only there for a year, year and a half, just a little less than that is that you really want to make sure that privacy is a co-owned resource. Like you have these privacy teams that are disparately spread out across the company. And I learned so much more about privacy from the privacy team that was based in Google Cloud versus the centralized privacy team versus the privacy team that was working out of YouTube. Because everybody's data has a different view about human life. The data people have about them in YouTube is different than the data somebody has about them in Gmail. So how do you protect people's privacy more holistically? How do you look at somebody as a whole person? Uh, That was a very, very interesting learning. And in that instance, that was one of my biggest experiences at the, uh, from my Google time and making sure that your engineers think of privacy as a collective endeavor is uh, very, very helpful. I had never thought about like the human sided aspect of that. And you just said it twice. Like, how do I think about privacy when I'm looking at a human's whole life? That's so neat. 
And, you know, it's one of those things where uh, the example I give to engineers when I hire, like when I, uh, like I just asked this uh, person a question in, in an interview, I'm, I was looking at this candidate for a role on my team yesterday. And I asked her, what's the difference between security and privacy? And she gave me what is probably one of the crispest answers I've heard in my life. She said, without security, you can't have privacy. But if all you have is security, then you have no humanity. That's what she told me. And uh, I wish I were as smart as she is now when I was 10 years younger or 15 years younger. But I mean, I can't wait to extend an offer to her, but that's a different story. She was fantastic. And I, like I said, I'm just super excited to have her, assuming she accepts the offer to work with me. Uh, but what the larger point this makes is back in the day, like 15 years ago, when I wrote code, you thought of data as a structured data set. Like you had what, what is known as key value pairs, right? So you basically have, uh, you know what the field is about and you know what the data it contains is, right? So it's very, very visible. It's very understandable. But now data has fundamentally changed. You want data to be quick. You want data to be easily accessible. You want data to be very contextual. So what that means is you have unstructured data, which lives in Cassandra, MongoDB. You have data being replicated via CDN networks. You have some data living in your databases on site. You have some data living in AWS GCP. You have data being copied to Elasticsearch. You have data that is being shared with DMPs, DSPs. You have data that is being requisitioned from third parties. So what all of that volume means is that the individual person is lost. You feel like a human being standing in the middle of Times Square. You got all these lights, these tall buildings. And it's easy to forget that the person on the other side is a real human being. And a decision you make might, might impact who they are, where they live, who they love, maybe even their physical safety. And it's important to remember that. And when I hire engineers for my team, I tend to give them a problem that forces them to think about data more holistically. What is the user impact going to be? Don't just tell me what it means for GDPR or CCPA. We have really smart attorneys who take care of that and they do an awesome job. But if you as a human being had your data used in this fashion, how would you feel? If your elderly father like mine uses a resource, an online property, how would he feel if his data were used in that fashion? Somebody who doesn't have the power to fight back or somebody who doesn't know what is being done to their data, how do you represent their sensibilities? It's important to bring that sense of ethic because otherwise it's important to forget that human component. And all you talk about is the volume of data, the metrics, these dashboards, and it's easy to forget that. So that's a precondition to being able to work on my team. It's important to have that human connection. So, so that raises an interesting question um, for me from the, from the other side as, as a consumer, right? So, so I use Facebook and Twitter and all this, all this stuff, right? And, and it almost feels like a Faustian bargain sometimes, right? Like I'm going to use this service and all well, I have to kind of hope for the best, uh, that, that things are going to work out. These companies are going to do the right thing. But as, as a consumer or end user, what, what can I do for myself? What's the most important you know things I can and should do so that I'm not going to be uh, abused by other companies, but while I can still, you know, I mean, I still want to share pictures of my kids to my grandparents on Facebook. Right. Yeah. So what, what, what can I do that sort of, um, without taking over my life, I can still make things better. Yeah. And that's a great point, Andrew. So a one point, and this is especially germane for me because I don't think there is another person on the planet with my first name and last name combination. And that was at least true as of 2013 guaranteed because I became a U.S. citizen in 2013. And uh, the FBI or the government agency that did my background check told me I'm the only person with my first name and last name. So anything about me online, any private data about me, what it to leak would have severe ramifications upon me because I can't say, oh, it's not me, it's the other guy, right? There is no other guy. It's just me. 
if somebody else wants to name their kid Nishant Bajaria, please feel free because it'll give me a little more privacy, but I don't have that option right now. But going back to your larger point, my philosophy on this is that I broadly agree that we need to make sure that there is more privacy education, but as a customer, and also I bring that philosophy to the teams that I build and the engineers that I hire, it is our responsibility to make sure that we hold a high bar. Whatever company you work for, hold a high bar and make sure that you make the right decisions. If you blame the customer, you're on the wrong foot. It's a bit like the politician claiming that, you know, I was, I had the best proposals. The people are too stupid. They didn't vote for me. You know, you can't consider your customer stupid and expect to have them on your side. That's number one. So I would hold our businesses, our governments to a high bar. We pay a lot in taxes. We pay a lot in revenue. We make a lot of revenue possible for these companies. Uh, the infrastructure we have, the economic, social, government infra infrastructure has a responsibility to protect us as customers. So you want to bring that sensibility to your job every single day. The third thing I would mention is, yes, I do agree. Customers also need to up the game in terms of data protection, right? Learn more about privacy, understand what data collection means, understand that when you use services for free, your data is essentially being used to build those services and make those services possible at scale, right? And understand what you are signing up for. Uh, make sure that you are an, an informed customer. So when laws get passed, inform the process, because when you when laws like GDPR get passed, they don't get passed in a vacuum. They get written by regulators and lawmakers, they derive their understanding from public sentiment and industry mistakes, right? So decisions we make as employees of a company and decisions we make as customers become input vectors for these laws to get passed. So for customers to say that they don't have a role to play is simply not the case. And I started getting, getting involved in this stuff in 2013 and 2014 because I feel, and this was ever since I became a U.S. citizen, when I felt like I had a stake in the system because now I could vote because I was already paying taxes. It's important to think of these laws as a partnership between companies, governments, and consumers. If it's just governments, you'll end up with laws that are often too onerous, hard to comply with, and they don't end up helping customers. If these laws are only written by industry, then they end up becoming very industry specific and customers are too scattered to write laws. So if you think about this as a partnership, that's what's going to produce laws that A, make sense, B, are effective, and C, are impactful. I have to ask you then, uh, so... You know, I direct teams in how to design uh, software and d digital experiences. My designers aren't necessarily trained in, you know, the legal ramifications, the privacy ramifications. They know it as consumers that it's important. Um, but we also rarely connect with people on, on your side, on privacy, on legal, to understand really what we should be looking out for. What would you tell a team that's responsible for working on the concept and, and actual design of a product? What should they be thinking about when they're putting together those screens um, to bake in early on the question that they need to put forward to your teams? Yeah, so what I would basically say is, if you can make it work, I would have your teams, and let's assume for a second, you and I are colleagues, right? The way I would game this is to say, have one of my privacy specialists work with your team, help your team build out the screens, essentially make privacy one of your features. So whatever capability your teams are building, it would have a bunch of features, right? So make mm -hmm. privacy one of those features. So what mm -hmm. data do they collect? What does the UI look like? What do the notifications look like? What does the disclosure look like? For example, those privacy policy links that often show up above or below the submit button. If there is a checkbox that seeks user consent, how big must the checkbox be? Those small design decisions at the UI layer 
to ranging to the backend decisions in terms of what data gets collected, what it, what it gets used for. Make sure that the decisions your team is making at the very, very early, early stage are made in partnership. So my team can guide, can advise, can tell you what the downstream implications are going to be. Because what happens is when your team builds out these features and these ideas, maybe on the whiteboard, maybe on a Google Doc or something, or maybe on Quip, I don't know what IBM uses, these decisions are often made with the, with a lens towards your product alone, right? You may yeah. not know what some other product is doing because you guys, again, may be fairly disconnected from each other as well. So, but my team works with folks across the company. We know what IBM Cloud is doing. We know what IBM Retail is doing. We know what IBM Consulting is doing. So we can bring that knowledge, that insight, that context, and tell you, hey, don't collect this data. Those other folks over there did that and they had to delete all of it. Or collect it, but set a shorter retention period. Or collect it, but aggregate that data somehow so it's not individually identifiable. We can give you those tips and tricks and you can build those out early on and you can avoid making bad decisions. So using our teams as a, as a consultant would be very helpful. The second thing you can do is you can tell us what capabilities you need from a privacy perspective that you are having to build as one off. And what a team like mine could do is build out that capability as a central API and make it available to multiple teams. So that way it becomes much more cost effective for the company rather than five different teams like Jen's team building a deletion capability, Andrew's team building a deletion capability. You outsource that within the company to a central privacy team and they can make it available for everyone. So those are two examples to make this scale. And you could do the right thing for yourself and for the company as a whole as a result. That's interesting. Have you ever seen or had designers on a privacy team that their job is to gather those patterns, standardize them across all of the different platforms, and then share out those patterns and standards with you know, the design teams? Well, absolutely. And that is what we do at Uber and not exactly the same thing, but that is very, very similar to what we do. What we basically have as a responsibility within our consulting arm. So the people who report to me range from privacy engineers. These people write code, they write APIs and tools and services, but then there are data analysts, there are privacy architects, there are governance specialists. That body is responsible for doing exactly what you described, Jen, which is to look at these patterns, to collect the data, to identify what the business is doing, what changes are happening in the business, how might that affect our privacy. So they serve as this middle connecting tissue and they tell the engineers on my side what to build, what services to build for the rest of the company. And they tell the rest of the company what is happening elsewhere to make it scale. So it is critical to have people who speak from a data design lens and connect the engineers and the attorneys and the product people all in one go. That's great. I love that. Do you have a type of data that you, you tell people, you're always telling people stop collecting that? Like, is there, is there some kind of data that people think they need and you say, well, it turns out this is both high risk and low value? Yeah, so that is, it goes back to the data classification and cataloging work that I mentioned before, Andrew. What you want to do is you can either detect this data at the point of ingest and catch people early on, or you can detect it at the back end of your warehouse using crawlers, sniffers, regular expressions, and what have you. And you can ensure that people do one of two things, either deleted, not collected right away, or have other controls like set what is known as a TTL, which is time to live, basically set a timer on the table where after X period passes, an automated job deletes the data or encrypts the data somehow, right? So make, make it so that the data is only retained and used in line with your risk assessment contain, pertaining to that data. The only way you can do that is by having a central governance view that I mentioned before. Um, along those lines, is there like a, is there a food label for the data privacy industry? Is there like a standard little rating 
that gets applied to different, you know, software pieces or platform experiences that says they check these boxes and they get a grade C. Yeah. So the nutrition, I think the phrase right now is the nutrition label that I think Apple is talking about as, as the leaders in the privacy space. I'm not surprised. Uh, so I don't think that is an industry standard. That's been one of the challenges here, which is that we don't have a central industry standard right now. So when you pay taxes, which we all will in a few weeks, you have the federal 1040 form and then you have the form pertaining to the state. Of course, I don't think you do, Jen, because you live in Texas and I don't think Texas has state mm-hmm. income tax. So that aside, um, I don't think there is one for privacy, but my sense is the combination of what Apple is doing and what eventually becomes the framework of a U.S. privacy law might get us that, but we're not waiting for that. So when I was at Netflix, when I'm at Uber right now, we're not waiting for that. You need to come up with an internal ranking structure that lets you do that because what you do basically is that nutrition label or the risk assessment, as I call it, the classification level, as I also like to call it sometimes, that lets you rank your data. That that ranking then lets you tag the data and indexing it like Google does with their search engine. That then feeds into control. So as an example, if you have an SSN, only let the payments team use it or rather the membership team look at it to make sure that you can get credit as an example if you apply, if you're a credit card company. So there is, the short answer to your question is there is not an industry specialist or government specialist recognition of what that nutrition label should look like. I think it's coming. My prediction is this time next year, we will have something that either is a lot more official than we have right now, or the Apple version or something like it becomes what the industry has consensus around. One of those two things will happen because otherwise you end up in a situation where people just don't know what to protect. Either it's protect everything or have a free for all and neither is sustainable. That is cool. I can't wait to see that. Um, I have one more question I, ha- I have to ask you, and I know Andrew's going to have better questions, but have you seen the Amazon semi with the armed guards that comes and takes away all your data if you migrate to AWS? Oh my goodness, I have not. Is that a real thing or is that uh, is it a camera <laughs> hiding to capture my expression someplace? <laughs> I mean, at IBM, we have the suitcase, but oh. I don't think we have armed guards. We just have like you know, your IBM or walk in with a suitcase and just take as much stuff as they can. But I think it's one of their selling points at, is at Amazon is, yeah, transfer to us, we'll send the semi. Okay. I, I have not seen that. No. So you, you, you got me there, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> You're good for one of those a show. Keep us on our toes. Yeah. Well, I, I, this has been great. I've learned so much and, and I'm really excited to, to learn more. Uh, I, I, I'd like to encourage folks, they can get they can get to your book, um, privacy by design on manning.com. Um, we've got a code for them. Uh, Nishant, you want to give the code where they can get your book? Yeah. So the, the 35% code, right? Andrew, just to make yes. sure. Yes. Uh, again, I'll repeat that is pod Azen 21. So P for Pennsylvania, O for Ohio, D for Delaware, A for Arizona, I for Indiana, Z for zebra, E for England and for Nebraska pod Eisen, and then the number 21. So it's a, it's a wonderful book. It is still being written. I, I expect it's publishes later this year. That is correct. Um, in the summer. But, but you can get, you can get early access right now with that code pod AIZEN21. I hope you check it out. Um, Nishant, where, where would you like people to contact you? Yeah, please connect with me on LinkedIn. As I mentioned before, I'm the only person with my first name, last name combination. And I think as I was supposed to announce the first five people who connect with me after this broadcast is live, uh, also get an additional five ebook code. So they're like five free ebook codes. So those folks will get ebooks for free. So please connect with me on LinkedIn as well. I'd love to 
make more friends in the industry, learn more and just build out the network as well. Great, great offer. First five people to contact you, get a free book. Tough, tough to beat. All right. Well, let's, let's do our plugs then, uh, Jen. So you can find uh, the show first of all at AI Zen podcast on Twitter or, um, AI Zen uh, with Andrew and Jen on LinkedIn. You can find uh, me at Andrew R. Freed on Twitter, uh, the same name on LinkedIn and, and Jen on LinkedIn as well. Jennifer Sukas. Anything else to plug, Jen? Yeah, my last name changed. It's not Sukas anymore. It's Owie. And they can't find me at Sukas. So too bad. You'll never have to plug me again. <laughs> I changed it specifically for this reason. <laughs> That's fantastic. So don't please don't contact Jen, but you can contact me, contact the show. We'd love to hear from you uh, what we should cover next. Um, topics you want to hear about, feedback on any of our shows. We love to hear from you. And, uh, you know, I said Nishant's a fellow author. I would love if you checked out uh, my book as well, uh, Creating Virtual Assistance. Both of our books available on uh, manning.com uh, and both publishing later this year. So, uh, Nishant, thanks for being with us. We had a wonderful time. And we wish you the best. Thank you so much. Thank you again. All right. Thanks, listeners. We'll we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you.